In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. This is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I am Brian Rose. I also host London Real. It's the same studio, but it's not just tech. Uh, we get some crazy people in here. We've had uh, Mr. Tim Ferriss of the Four Hour Everything. Uh, this week we have Ty Lopez, who claims he's got the second largest book club after Oprah. Uh, he's a fascinating guy, uh, investor, entrepreneur, and uh, this next week I uh, just interviewed Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad Poor Dad. I don't know if you know that book, yeah. but uh, yeah, I just sat down with him last week at the um, Excel Center, and uh, yeah, he was fascinating. And then I listened to the whole audio book, and anyways, it gets pretty crazy. And so the, the Culture High too. Oh yeah. yeah, and we were at the Culture High premiere last week, yeah. uh, which was fantastic uh, with Adam Scorgi. So a lot going on there. That's LondonReal.tv. But we're here to talk tech today. Uh, my co-host is Colin Pyle. Uh, bringing his coffee to Harrods. Um, it's all kicking off. Uh, what's it like being a coffee tycoon? Um, yeah, super caffeinated, and, and, but yet still tired. Uh, no, things are great. Yeah, Harrods next week, super pumped, and we're going into all the Soho House rooms across the UK. That's big. Starting next week as well. So, um, yeah, lots going on. Uh, looking for new staff, so if you're interested in joining a... Oh, look at you. Uh, you know, big, big, big growing company. Drop me an email. Uh, just calling at crewcafe.com or Very tweet nice. at me. And uh, yeah. So good. I mean, you're the premium uh, coffee and you're in premium places. So you got to be yeah. happy about that, right? Yeah. Harrods, yeah, Soho good. House. I mean, Her- Soho House is kind of 25 to 45, and Harrods is 45 and up. So look at you hitting the demo. Um, yeah. All right, cool. Thanks for being here. Um, on to the show. Our guest today is Julie Meyer, who is the founder of Entrepreneur Country, uh, which connects the world's uh, enterprises with leading digital enablers, or as you like to say it, you introduce David to Goliath. Uh, you've got a conference coming up in London on October 29th uh, with the theme, The Art of War. Uh, you're also the founder and chief executive of investment and advisory firm uh, Ariadne Capital. Uh, your passion is Europe's growth story. Uh, Julie, welcome to Silicon Real. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I was watching one of your TEDx talks. She has two. And uh, you said, stop worrying about the money. Uh, The more you don't focus on the money, the more money finds you. And uh, I just wanted to start with that because it was like, it was definitely something that gets your attention. You said if you have the right ideas and if you're good and articulate them, the money will find you. Is that true? You know, I, um, when I was in, I went to Paris when I was 20 years old and I was there for six years and I had this, this boyfriend who was like much older and much wiser and had a hell of a lot more money than I did when I was 22 years old. And he was really bored watching me at age 22, wonder why I didn't have any money and how I was going to break into the French tech, be a business person in France at age 22. And finally he said, you know, Julie, just stop worrying about the money. And I remember thinking this was the stupidest comment. He said, if you're good, the money will find you. And I just thought, yeah, right. That's easy for you to say because you made all this money and you're blah, blah, blah. Until I realized, Julie, that's why he made all the money. He stopped worrying about the money and that's how he made the money. Right. So the, I see entrepreneurs being obsessed constantly about not having money. And they forget that the reason why 
they're an entrepreneur is they're obsessed and they're compelled to bring their vision to the market, right? Entrepreneurs have a secret. They know something by virtue of their background, their expertise, the unique life story. They have a secret and they need to bring that secret to the market. The real big difference from entrepreneurs and the rest of us, because there's a lot of Saturday night entrepreneurs that talk about this stuff at dinner parties on Saturday nights, is entrepreneurs are willing to live the abnormal lives to bring that to bring that to market. And they forget every once in a while, they just say, oh my God, I have no money, right? I'm living on air. What do I do? And so they need to remember that the job of the capital provider, the job of the venture capitalist is to go find those guys. And throughout history, it's always been that way, right? It's not, you know, we don't remember Queen Isabella. It was Queen Isabella's job to find Christopher Columbus and make sure he settled the new world for Spain, right? We, you know, Medici family, okay, fine, but it's really Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, those are the guys who painted the Sistine Chapel, right? So that, that entrepreneurial group of people, they haven't always been called entrepreneurs, but they are out there. Those people that create wealth, but they, they have a vision of the future and they bring it kicking and screaming into the present. They've been called adventurers, they've been the artists, they've been the industrialists, and the money people, it's our job to go find them. And capital always follows ideas. It's not that ideas chases the capital. The capital follows the ideas. It's interesting. We had uh, you know Simon from DFJ in here in the early days. We've got Index on this week, and a lot of uh, entrepreneurs look up to these you know big VC funds as kind of you know the guys on the on the mountain, and they choose you. But you know the way you say it is is VC isn't an industry itself; it's a supporter of industry. That's right. The problem and what what happened with the the, the meltdown, the financial services crisis, and all the rest of it of the past is financial services forgot that it's a service industry to industry. This, this whole London is a financial center, okay, fine, but it's a service industry to industry. Its job is to back industry. That's the job of the financial services sector. And that's why, why would you ever uh, invest in a banking stock, right? If you're a holder of shares in a bank where the majority of the profits of the bank are basically going to the employees, right? I think employees should be properly compensated and incentivized to high performance, but the majority of the profits of banks go out to the bankers, not to the shareholders, right? So it's a pretty messed up kind of, you know, situation there. And, and really people put capitalists in, you know, bankers and entrepreneurs and, the, and they say, oh, those capitalist greedy people. Most entrepreneurs I know are skint. Most bankers I know are not, right? So you got people who are risking it all, who got, you know, the house on the line, the, the wife's going nuts and all the rest of it, never see anything. And then you got really high, you know, paid employees, right? Not the same thing. Entrepreneurs are risking their capital. They're living abnormal lives. So the view that I take and the view that just kind of, you know, permeates from Ariadne Capital is let's recognize that the, it, it starts with the entrepreneur. In fact, society works best if it's organized around the entrepreneur, and society is not organized around the entrepreneur right now, right? So that's our view. We treat entrepreneurs not just with respect. We give them progress reports on Friday afternoon. Here's what we've done for you this week. We don't want you to go into the weekend not knowing what your investor, Ariadne Capital, has been doing for you this week, right? So what other venture capital firm do you know anywhere in the world who's basically saying, Every week, we're going to tell you what we're doing to help you in your entrepreneurial journey.
That's the difference, right? So we've got people going back 15 years who basically said, you connected me here, you treated me with, re with respect when nobody else was doing it, you introduced me to that person, you helped me along the way, so now that I made this money, yeah, I wanna put money in your fund or I'm doing my next thing, I wanna tell you about it before I tell other people about it because the fact of the matter is is that most people don't treat entrepreneurs with respect until it looks like they're gonna be the next big thing. So Ariadne's Capital has been around for 13 years. You were with Skype in the early days. Have you seen the VC community go the wrong way then in the last three to five years in London? Or is it going the wrong way? And does the valuation kind of frothiness make that even worse? Yeah, so we've been, we'll be 14 years old on the 8th 14. of December. Okay. And, uh, you know, and I'm really glad that you know, the day after I sold First Tuesday to uh, Jerusalem Global, um, I decided, okay, I wasn't able to do everything I wanted to do with First Tuesday. So I, I'm glad that I pitched my tent out there and said, we're going to build the gold standard for the financing of entrepreneurship. And I'll tell you right now, and I don't say this anywhere else, but the Silicon Valley Sand Hill Road of Europe has not been built, right? So a lot of people think that they are there, but my competition, right? So 5% of my fund is my money. There's not a venture fund in Europe where the general partner has 5% of their own money. Not a single one. You cannot find that general partner in Europe for venture capital fund. So the first thing wrong with the venture capital industry is that the GP is not aligned with the LP. Most of them are on a million pound salaries. Right? Instead of having a million pounds of their own money in the fund, they're being paid a million pounds. Right? That's a big difference. So my competition are employees. Right? Nothing wrong with being an employee, but I'm sorry, that's not the venture capital business then. That go be a consultant, go be an investment banker, but if you're dealing with somebody who's got their life on the line building their business and you're making a million pound salary, you've got a big challenge to understand what they're going through in terms of the level of risk that they've taken. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that they've got one play in their playbook. The European venture capital community is basically trying to find the best European entrepreneur to back to figure out which US technology firm they're gonna sell it to, okay? So because we haven't created platform companies in Europe like the Facebook, Apple, Amazon, um, brigade, those platform companies where all the value is being created. So we're backing more or less application companies and selling them to U.S. platform technology firms. So the entire European venture capital community is making money for America. That's a problem. That's a real big problem, right? So all of this government money to back European venture as well, it's ultimately not creating long-term sustainable growth. It's not the, the value is not accumulating to Europe and the U.K., but we've had a few IPOs recently, so we've seen them monetize that way. I mean, mm -hmm. King and Just Eat, mm -hmm. they're not necessarily looking for a U.S. exit, mm. are they? No, it's, uh, it's true that, in fact, somebody was just telling me recently 80% of the institutional investors in the London stock market are American institutional investors, which I haven't been able to verify. That was told to me just a couple of hours, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm. But you're right. The IPO market, um, you know, there's definitely stuff is coming through to the market and it seems like the A market is, is a lot stronger than it used to be and you know I'd argue that neither one of those are really you know technology plays they're good businesses you know but neither one of them are necessarily known for their use of technology they're online businesses definitely right yeah do you think that problem's in the the culture of the entrepreneur or do you think it's a VC problem and those are the only companies they're backing which which problem so being... in terms of uh, you know creating products for platforms in the US 
Well, the, so the, you know, the, the opportunity today is for the Santanders, the Avivas, the Paddy Powers, the you know, Bauer Medias, and so forth, retailers, insurance companies, banks, and so forth, to become platforms. We're not going to create new Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Googles in Europe, in Asia, or in Europe. We've got to open up the existing companies and for them to be platforms, for them to become essentially highways for the startups to go to market. No venture capitalist is going to give $50 million sterling euro to a startup to basically acquire customers. They're going to have to do a deal with a partner. And those partners today, every UK entrepreneur is thinking, I've got to do a deal with an app store. I do a deal with iOS or Apple App Store, et cetera. So the, po the point is, is that if you didn't go to Palo Alto for your funding, you go to Palo Alto for your distribution. And if you didn't go there, then you go to Palo Alto for your exit. The whole thing revolves around Palo Alto. And yet the macro trend is that great entrepreneurs can come from anywhere on the planet. But the infrastructure of entrepreneurship has not been evenly distributed, right? So we need to think a little bit more deeply because it's a system level problem to the question of what's the problem. It's a system level problem. Is it just the London stock market? not just a London stock market. It's that the corporates are not actually highways for these digital cars that are coming down. They didn't even know, you know, necessarily how to do that, right? They're, you know, they're not cloud-based platforms. And what do we mean by that? The, the, the future um, retailers and banks, their business model is going to look like what Apple did to the music industry. It's all going to move towards that, that set of, you know, economic models where there's clear economics for multiple parties, right? It's going to be what Apple did to music, what they did to telecoms, what Google did to advertising. All of those business models are going to look like that. We just need to look at the digital winners, move forward 10 years. That's what's going to happen, right? So the sooner we get there, the sooner we have more choices in terms of how entrepreneurs go to market, right? Now, I'm not saying anytime soon that people are going to say, oh my God, I need to do a deal with Royal Mail to go to market and get access to, you know, 20 million customers through Royal Mail. But they should be thinking, I should be able to do a deal with insurance company, bank. I should be able to go to market with some of these. Because what do the banks and the retailers have? They've got customers. They've got big customer bases. The telcos, you know, the NHS should be a massive highway and platform for British healthcare app digital health companies to go to market. Is the NHS a platform to go to market for digital health companies? Is that, have, is, that, is, is there any likelihood of that happening right now? Well, it was all over the paper that they've, you know, the Independent on Sunday said, we've got a big $30 billion black hole in, uh, you know, for the NHS, but nobody's saying, let's reimagine the NHS to make it really sustainable. It's got to have a P&L. That doesn't mean worse healthcare. That means sustainable healthcare. That means all of these new applications could actually be delivered to all of the patients across the country, but because we've got this mental blockage that healthcare and education have to be cost centers, and we can't imagine that there's a contribution to GDP that British healthcare and education could make, we just say, oh, oh she must be talking private equity. Oh, it, it's about private. It's not about privatization. It's about how do we create sustainable models today and it's really about platforms and the app economy, which is working in every other industry. It's going to hit 
you know? Yeah. We're, we're not just going to continue to fund the NHS to the tune of $30 billion. This partnership theme is something you talk a lot about, you know, with Entrepreneur Country. And I just want to get into this David and Goliath narrative. It's got a great name to it. But I believe you're saying that all of these startups, you know, ultimately have to partner with these, these huge companies. And the huge companies need the Davids as well. But I don't know. Could you go a little further on the narrative that you stole, obviously, from the Bible? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, if you think of every digital startup, you know, um, whatever kind of data play they are, whatever enabling technology they are, they're really an algorithm, right? That's what a startup is. An entrepreneur has identified a problem in the market and he or she has an understanding of how to make money in terms of solving that problem. So it's really kind of cute because I spent a lot of time with a lot of corporates and I was like, oh my God, we have this problem. And it's just like, great news guys, there's an entrepreneur out there that's been working on that problem for two years. You've discovered that problem last quarter, they've got the solution and they've been selling it into the market for 18 months, right? So the Davids are way far ahead. They are problem solvers, they're visionaries, and they know stuff. The Davids know stuff. They understand that consumer data is the new entrant into the business model. They, will, they understand the world's gone network. They, they, they figured out the future. Davids go to entrepreneur country, which is AKA the future, every single day, right? So if we could aggregate perfectly all of those digital Davids, we'd have perfect information about the future, right? But nobody's listening to the Davids. The Goliaths, they've got the customers. They're the highway. They've got, you know, so if, if a David, instead of talking about technology, instead of getting all, you know, hyped up when he is in front of his customer, the Goliath could say, Mr. Telco, Mr. Bank, just give me access to X amount of your customer base, right? Y period of time, and I'll deliver Z material revenue to you. Let's just do a couple of pilots and trials this year, and I can show you how you can make net new revenue in mobile payments, retail analytics, whatever it is, right? But how many of those discussions happen? First of all, David's waiting for nine, nine months to get into in front of the right person in his Goliath. And then Goliath is not really treating him or her with any kind of respect. Then they're operating on different clock speeds. Then Goliath is saying, you know, oh my God, you know, how do I make sure that this will not fail? In reality, if it fails, Good news, right? You didn't spend a lot of money on something that didn't work, right? Lots of stuff fails. In fact, it's not failure. It's just it didn't solve the problem. So you still know stuff. You know what doesn't work, right? Lots of failures before the breakthrough, right? So pilots and trials, you all got to get comfortable. Not everything's going to work, right? So there's so many mismatches in David and Goliath dancing, one short, one tall, one's girl, one's boy. It's, there's just all sorts of mixed matches there. And yet... That's kind of this third vision of the future, because the first vision of the future is just U.S. technology firms take over every industry. Lots of evidence that they're going to do that. Second vision of the future is these digital disruptors, the Elon Musks of the world, Airbnb, Uber, they're getting the money and they can tell the story. They take over the future. 95% of the universe is not Airbnb or Amazon. What's going to happen to them? They're not going to fall off a cliff. What happens to 95% of the universe, which is all of these unsexy corporates, mid-market, middle-stant companies around the world? What's their fight-back strategy? Well, they need some people that got a story to enable them to give them a cut of all of this digital, re digital revenue happening, right? So they're trying all these different models. And what Entrepreneur Country says to them is, hold on to your money. Don't spend your money. Don't hire McKinsey. Don't buy companies. Don't set up a fund. Don't take equity don't, for office don't, don't space. Don't create an accelerator. Don't <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. do it. <laughs> don't create a cost center. Focus on your digital P&L. It's about making money, right? 
seems really obvious to me. So what do you say to the, uh, the weekly phenomenon in London of the large corporate opening up an accelerator? I won't go through the list. We've had a lot of them on this show, and they're doing great work, but it seems like a never-ending you know, process of these things. Are those good for yeah. business? Yeah, you know what I would say? There's always the second hour of the conversation. The first hour of the conversation with anyone that's running the accelerator, who's participating, the first hour is always good. Everything's perfect. It's great. We're meeting people. Oh, my God. If you stick with them to the second hour, that's when they'll really start to tell you what's really going on. They'll say, oh, my God, I've created a kindergarten of baby companies. And your financials are not improving. You're right. Did you notice that? I said, I did. I read the report, right? So people are doing all sorts of stuff on the cost center, but it's all sexy stuff. Oh my God, there's events. The alcohol is flowing. So the first hour of the conversation, it's all good news. You stick with them to the second hour of the conversation and you say, what's the CFO think about the cost center? Oh, it's funny that you asked that because he said after this point, we're cutting it off, right? Because at the end of the day, it's forecasting season. Budget 2015 is coming around the corner here. What do we know differently about digital revenues for pick your favorite sector, favorite company, right? That's the reality of the business is what the revenue looks like, right? And we're now well into this whole digital transformation, so we can't be playing around with this. It's not just about people meeting each other. This is about really, do we really have a cut of those revenues? So what Monetize did in mobile banking is that they actually gave the banks a cut of mobile money revenue that would have gone to Western Union or PayPal, right? Aptivation, another great London-based firm, Aptivation, mobile application development business, the most downloaded fintech application has been built by Aptivation for Lloyds, right? That's good. That seems to me like a David helping a Goliath to dance. Downloaded apps, right? Fastest growing new business channel. That strikes me as a really good you know, story to tell and so forth. So those are the kinds of David and Goliath when it's revenue, it's about getting new customer channels open, taking costs out. That's what the David should be doing for the Goliath. So you're not a fan of accelerators? Well, I, I just, you know, I've yet to, people talk about accelerators and they'll say, oh, we got 140 companies here. Great, it's a lot of people to meet in the hallway. Or, oh, yeah, you know, I say, you know, I'd much rather hear a story like what Aptivation are doing for Lloyd's in terms of revenue, downloaded apps, and so forth. That, to me, makes sense. Just having lots of companies in an office doesn't make sense to me. I, I did that. You know, I've been in large, you know, thousand, you know, I did First Tuesday. It's great stuff when you're 33 to do all of that, right? But it just, it's really about the quality of your revenue stream. So it's not that I'm not a fan. It's just it's tiring. Right? At the end of the day, if you want to make money, there's got to be a different model. That's refreshing. We haven't had anyone put it that way. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It does seem a lot like busy work for, for some of them. And I guess, you know, you look at some of them, the ones that make the most sense to me are like the wires, for example, where a lot of that tech can be funneled through to Telefonica. And in a way, Telefonica is a, you know, is a Goliath that, that can take advantage of a lot of those other ones. But I see a lot of them run by banks or these big, you know, uh, call them consulting slash accounting. You know, I think they're going to have difficulty implementing and, and turning a profit. But what they do a lot of the time is try to make those introductions and how, I don't know always where they make any revenue off of those introductions. 
it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Julie, why are you still here in the UK? Why not go back to Sand Hill Road and do your thing over there? Uh, I'm sure you can, you, you, you can compete very well over there. Why did you stay in the UK and mm -hmm. Europe? Love it here. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a, uh, a massive opportunity. So there is a certain inefficiency in the market. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm typically in seat two A of British Airways going to a European city. Right. Um, the work that we're doing with IBM as a founding global partner. I know you had Sandy Carter on yeah, here, the great. global head of ecosystem development. So we're really close to IBM, and we're doing a series of David and Goliath dinners. So I've been in a different city. It felt a little bit like Captain Mustard in the kitchen with the rope. You know, it's kind of like if I'm in Copenhagen, I'm talking about mobile payments. If I'm in Berlin, I'm talking about retail, and it's been fascinating to see that patchwork quilt and to gain a kind of deep understanding of the, the way we talk about retail in Milan is different than Berlin and so forth. So it's intellectually fascinating. But from a kind of making money perspective, um, I came in September 88 and the period of time between 88 and today, let's just simply say there's been a building of that European marketplace, right? And um, pre-Maastricht, pre-Euro, um, all of that kind of stuff, massive inefficiency and people have made money in building the efficiency, building the infrastructure, right? So what I do is I look for closing the gap between inefficiency and efficiency. In the next 25 years of being in Europe, this market's going to operate, it's going to consolidate, it's going to integrate. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to make money by viewing it as a marketplace. There's 450 million great people that live in this market, right? And there's unique opportunities, but what I know is that hands down, like with a company like Quill, Ed Bussey, who we backed, and then Smedvig came in on the back of us and so forth, them compared to the, their U.S. competitor, now they're both equally funded, right? And their U.S. competitor doesn't even know that there's a market outside of New York City, whereas Quill's proposition in content development is any language, any style, any jurisdiction. They'll create that content for you outsource content, crowd of journalists, cloud platform, and so forth, right? So if you can do like the um, pay mill guys in Germany, people say that they're like the stripe of, of Europe and so forth, they've figured out that last mile. If you can do your proposition across 10, 10 different smaller regions across Europe, you're good, right? So if you, if you don't have to worry about all that complexity, but if you've got it nailed, if you actually become big in Europe, like eBuzzing, another $100 million hundred million dollar revenue European technology business that nobody's heard of, right? Video advertising like Go Viral, like YouTube, they've acquired nine businesses across Europe, right? Hundred million dollars, they're probably, I don't know, hurtling towards an IPO. That's hard. It's hard to be 15 regions, nine acquisitions, hundred million dollar business across Europe. So I just have so much respect for that. Um, and then I just think that um, there's a big opportunity because when I do go out to Palo Alto, as I did in August, um, there's just something about that, forgive me, alpha male, arrogant, American, Silicon Valley hype machine that I've really, you know, Americans are taught kind of on day two of their life, tell the world what you think until you get outside of America and you think, oh my God, the world doesn't actually really want to know what I think. And now as an American, I go back there and I think, shut up just <laughs> stop talking about yourself right so i kind of understand how the brits look at the americans they're just like will they stop talking right you know i'd much rather hear a story like what Aptivation are doing for lloyd's in terms of revenue downloaded apps and so forth that to me makes sense just having lots of companies in an office doesn't make sense to me 
So I want to be that bridge between helping, you know, British entrepreneurs, all the talent, ego in check, right? They're not talking about themselves all the time. Now, the challenge is that if you're going to say that you're going to own, own the market, you got to say you're going to own the market, right? And they don't do that, right? So there's an opportunity because I can say with and for them, we're going to own that market, right? So these seven explosive growth companies that we've backed, we've helped them say, we're going to own that market, right? And that's what we do. So I bring a little bit of that, you know, understanding that marketing trumps technology. You got to create the market. You got to create the position in the market. And you got to tell people that you do that. Hopefully we do that in a, in a less, you know, antagonistic, alpha male, arrogant, you know, um, way. Because I, I just think that this is about real change that's happening in society. It's about driving prosperity all the way through society. It's not just about getting, you know, billion pound valuations and stuff like that. It's an interesting observation from an American, no less, of America. I mean, we see versions of that. We've seen the latest show, Silicon Valley, which yeah. I used to talk about more when it just came on. And, you know, you see the, the com competitiveness of these top white alpha male billionaires, but I've never heard it, heard it put so well. But then, you know, we also... We've heard before, and, and you know, it keeps coming coming around, is that that quality mm -hmm. can, is often the quality that makes you know the Steve Jobs or or that sort of that arrogance and that drive to I'm going to own the entire market, I'm going to be create the best product possible, and I can do that, mm -hmm. rather than often the more reserved European entrepreneur often says, you know, I'll create something for that platform, and then you get get an exit. I don't think Oliver Samwar is reserved. I don't think that Mike Lynch is reserved. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that the ambition, drive, aggressiveness is not there. I think it's delivered in a, in, in a different way. Um, what I would say is, though, and this is, you know, when I met Sandy Carter at IBM Smart Camp in February out in San Francisco, and I was on panel with a bunch of Silicon Valley VCs who, to a global audience of startups, were saying, basically, if you're not in Silicon Valley, you're nobody, you have no chance. It was kind of like a softball to hit out of the park, and I just kind of said, I really disagree with that, right? The macro trend, undeniable, undeniable that it's great entrepreneurs can come from Timbuktu. They don't have to be taking their Starbucks at Palo Alto, right? So the macro trend is that they're coming from all over the planet. It's that infrastructure which is not evenly distributed. And that's really the opportunity is to build that infrastructure, right? This is a social good, but it's also a big business. It's about that closing the gap on efficiency. And then also, the, the thing that I think people have not really cottoned on to, but we see it so clearly, is that what's happening at the micro level with business models, of which we've been fortunate you know, to work with some great entrepreneurs that have really you know, organized the economics for their ecosystem. Um, look at what happened with Tesco. 250 million pound profit black hole, right? Why is that? It's because the people who were reporting that the, you know, the, the, the fraud happened because they thought, well, we just have to keep on telling the same story. But how do you tell the same story about the industry if the business model has changed? Micro and macro are connected, right? So the good thing about working in venture capital is you're studying business models of startups. That actually is being reflected into a much broader canvas right now. Basically, all that stuff happening in Wall Street, all of that reporting in the city of London, and that's the interesting thing about the big wide world. And Silicon Valley and Wall Street are having a lot of back and forth right now on Bitcoin. You got Mark Andreessen, then you got the, you know, Wall Street is saying, I don't know about Bitcoin, right? But imagine if you could have that conversation globally, right? 
It's just super interesting how this is all going to play out. And I think innovation always wins, right? I'm just going to bet on the entrepreneurs because I really think that they have better information about the future. You mentioned Europe, three cities in Europe that we haven't heard about besides Berlin, three that excite you that you're going to, that you're like, we need to be paying more attention to. Yeah. Because we don't only talk about London All of here. them in Poland. I was in Poland last uh-huh. week. I was blown away. I was getting on the flight to Warsaw Monday morning last week, and I said, how did it happen that I'm spending the week in Poland? I don't get how I allowed that to happen. By the second day, I'd met, I'd met Anna Heike, who happens to be um, Martin Heike's um, sister who runs Intel Capital out there. Anna, when I was in this, I was in the shipyard that Lech Walesa had, uh, you know, solidarity. It was a big thing for Americans. And uh, she was his interpreter. So she starts telling me a little bit about Polish history, stuff that I didn't know. I didn't know the Polish government had never surrendered for 50 years. From the day they were invaded by Nazi Germany until it returned to Lech Walesa, the Polish government never surrendered. And all sorts of fascinating facts. I tell you, go shopping in Paris, but back the Polish entrepreneurs, because these guys have unbelievable grit unbelievable grit, right? So we all have the benefit of just accumulated capital. We don't know what it's like for your entire treasury of a nation. Yeah, sure, we know people that have lost money and so forth. Imagine if the entire country has its wealth confiscated, right? And then to try to rebuild that 25 years ago, right? Um, we're through a quirk of fate, whatever. And, and, and so the, this group of people, Polish people, 40 million of them, Boy, do they have a chip on their shoulder. Boy, are they going to prove to the world they're not second class. Unbelievable Good entrepreneur material, right? Go to Sopot. Go to Gdansk. Go to Gavinia. Go to Warsaw. These people, I met the uh, founder of Aseco, massive systems integrator. I met the people at Aviva Poland, smart people. They were finishing my sentences. They were just like, yeah, no, we know what you're talking about here. Let's, you know, let's just get to the point of how we implement this. CEO of Sanofi, amazingly smart women. These, these people that I met, I thought, hands down, right? You look at a lot of the laziness that you, in Western Europe, people are looking for work-life balance. They're not talking about work-life balance in Poland, right? Okay, that's good. Poland. Haven't heard that one before. Yeah. What else? What else? I gave you four. I gave you oh, four, four cities, cities in Poland. Poland. Yeah, right, I bet you didn't even know be. that Gdansk is really three cities. I bet you didn't know that. I didn't. Guilty. Guilty. I knew a so couple of So what's cities Poland, in Poland missing in order for them to move to the next level? Is it they have to come to London to make it happen, or, or does the more ecosystem and financing have to go to Poland? Good question. Discovery. They need to be discovered and to be discovering. So the corporates need to be able to discover innovation that's going to help them grow faster, and the startups need to be discovered, right? So the both. So that's why we position entrepreneur country as a discovery platform. Because back to this fragmentation, it's a little bit different if you're in Oregon and you're trying to find somebody in Atlanta. It works a little bit more easily. But across, you know, again and again, I'll be talking to the guy at Airbus who's doing innovation. I'll get off the stage in Prague and they'll say, visual analytics, you know, we'd be good for Airbus, but we don't know how to reach them. It's this inefficiency and fragmentation. So what Poland needs is actually what people in Newcastle need, which is what people in, you know, all of these different, they need to be able to find each other, right? So that discovery process is broken. It's not even broken. It's never been built, right? That's that infrastructure of entrepreneurship doesn't exist across. So we can't create Palo Alto across 450 million people, but the way that you would build Palo Alto today is different, right? 
but you surely don't need to go to Palo Alto in the same way that Poland doesn't need to go to Palo Alto and so forth. What you need to do is you need to make sure that if you've got a solution to a problem, people can find you. You made a statement in uh, one of your TED Talks that people in their 20s today, I think you polled some people in your company, and they didn't think of themselves as working for you. They thought of themselves as like working for themselves or their own P&L, and it's a concept I hadn't heard articulated before. What did you mean by that? Mm. And how is that relevant to entrepreneurs? Well, I just think that you know the, the tide of history is shifting to the inv- individual all across the board. I don't think that anybody in their 20s thinks that they work for anybody. They, don't, they wouldn't say it that way, right? If they, you know, they might be respectful to me and say, oh, yeah, no, we work for Julia, we work for Ariadne, and so forth. But I just don't think that they think of it that way. And, I, and to be honest, I didn't think of that that way. You know, so even though I'm really old, when I was 23 years old in Paris, I didn't think I worked for anybody. And then, oh, my God, I went back to Boston at one point, and I started working for a marketing agency. And the HR director took me aside, and she said, you know what the problem with you is? And I said, I don't know, what's the problem? And she says, you think you work for yourself. You work here, right? And I thought, caught, right? So I think I see it in myself. I never thought. Now, I, you know, I grew up as the daughter of an entrepreneur, so I had other problems. I, you know, I just have never thought that I work for somebody. But I see that behavior, right? These guys, sure, they want to be part of the team. I'm not saying we're not a team. We're a team, right? But they understand being an individual capitalist, which I think is very positive. I think there's very few downsides to that. So what I really mean is that Never before have the tools, the technology, the understanding of what it means to kind of put your shop front out there, even if you're inside of a business, for you to basically say kind of like, what do I bring to the world? What's my contribution? What's my value in the market, right? What am I going for that? And if you get these guys on their own, right, and you make them feel safe with a glass of wine, they'll tell you where they're going. They're saying, five years time, I'm running my own business, right? So, you know, I think... It may be in Naples, Italy, that it's difficult to get a job. I don't know, right? But I do know that the guy in Naples, Italy may not be able to get a job, but he damn well can create his own job today, right? So this idea that there's somebody holding you back is just yesterday's concept, right? So I think the world is becoming a lot more libertarian. I think it's becoming a lot more individual capitalist. And I think all of these issues around the way we collectivize risk, the way we try to collectivize security, not going to be talking about this stuff in 10 years' time. Because the kids that are in their 20s right now, that kind of, you know, on, on July 1st, you know what I say to people on my team? I say, no, what day it is? And they say, it's July July 1st. I say, no, today is the day you start working to take home money. The first six months of the year, you're paying tax. Now you're paying, you know, you get to spend the money. And I say, surely not, surely not. I say, Robert oh, Kiyosaki would right? love you. Yes. <laughs> so the point is, it's just that they're 25. What do they know? You know nothing at age 25. By the time you get to be 35, you have mortgages, you have families. And when these 25-year-olds get to be 35, they're going to say, who created this system? Oh my God, we could do this better. We could do it more efficiently, right? We can, we can actually take that collectivization. We can collectively organize ourselves using technology. We could do things locally, right? So when I wrote about uh, responsible business in the FT and I said, listen, I have to take responsibility for the fact that homelessness in Earl's Court Road exists, right? I haven't solved that problem, right? Government's not solved that problem. I get a direct t- tweet from somebody who says, we are a social angel group in Earl's Court Road called Wild Blue Cohort. We're solving social problems in Earl's Court Road. Would you like to join us? I thought, fantastic. 
This is a sign of the future, right? It's a sign that people are taking responsibility and saying, there's homelessness in Earl's Court Road. We're going to nail that problem, right? So increasingly, government's just being disrupted, and all of that power just keeps on shifting down to the individual, which is going to create a lot of other issues. I'm not saying it's perfect or panacea, but I'm just saying that's the same phenomena. These kids that think that they work for themselves, problems being, you know, being handled differently locally, it's part of this whole thing. It's no longer about the way we collectivize things in governments, all the rest of it. We're going to have to organize ourselves collectively in different ways using technology. London, sticking point, bottleneck for the future. What's the main one that you constantly see when you think about London and the UK as far as something we have to make sure we, we, we avoid or we something we really need to do differently? So London is really good and the United Kingdom just in general. I mean, the opportunity for what we're doing with Entrepreneur Country in terms of building the infrastructure, the systems of this new world, that's a really British thing to do. Took over the world, they did, right? Mm. They put the system in place. They said, you know, it will be Greenwich Mean Time. It will be the British pound. It will be English. The civil service looks like this. Brits know how to structure the world. But the world is changing. And so the risk to London is that we hold on to the old order of things instead of building the new order of things. So first peer-to-peer lending company in the world, Zopa, 2004, right? We did that deal in 2005, right? First peer-to-peer lending, crowdfunding, all of these new Bitcoin, all of these monetize, beat that quote, all of these financial services, you know, Wanga also, unfortunately, because they're always good and bad and everything. But the point is, is just that if British people would keep, just keep on doing what they do well, they structure the world. They create infrastructure systems, and in particular, in the financial world. That's what British people are really, really good at, right? So instead of holding on to the old order of things, if they embrace the new thing. But the challenge is... Are they an older child, right? Younger children build the world. Older children save the world. They preserve the world. So what London and the United Kingdom need to do is they need to become a younger child. They can't think like the older child. We've got everything to lose. You're losing it. So get over it. Build the new world. Build the structure into the new world. And as you go around the continent to Ireland and Poland and everything else, you're actually competing with younger children, right? Second-born, later-born children, right, that have no vested interest. The Bitcoin exchange business, which we invested in, that's, you know, setting up these emerging market Bitcoin exchanges. I tell you, if you're a poor person and pick your poor African country, you have no vested interest in the rules of the game being what they are. They want to change the rules of the game, right? So most of the universe wants to change the rules of the game. So you've got London and Britain that more or less kind of want to keep the rules. So they need to disrupt themselves or get comfortable with that. That's it. Okay. Um, Do Londoners work hard enough or is that that just a stereotype given to us by the alpha males in Palo Alto that we don't work hard enough? Work is relative to what you want to work, right? I think everybody should work exactly the amount of work that they want, right? People want to work 20 hours a week, think they should work 20 hours a week. They need to understand fully what that means in terms of their ability to buy nice clothes and cars, right? I think people should absolutely be able to lock themselves into whatever lifestyle. I have always, all my life, worked more than 80 hours a week. And I tell you, I'm a real happy person. 
Nobody forces me to work hard. My father at age 78 still works 80 hours a week. Not because he needs to. He loves it, right? Some people love to do stuff. They love to contribute what they can contribute. Not everybody's built like us. Some people should be able to work 20 hours a week. They're just not going to be able to shop at the same places I shop. Well put, right? Um, what's your typical day like? What is something about your routine that we might not be surprised at or what is something that we might be surprised at? You know, 80 hours is a lot of hours a week. Mm. Always have grapefruit juice in the morning. It makes you feel great. Like a, a smoothie? Or... Yeah, no, no, no. You just, you know, you squeeze the grapefruit, get all the juice, like okay. that. Okay. I don't know, I've been told that I lose weight drinking grapefruit juice, so it's, it's working for me. I love it. Yeah, okay, it makes good. me feel good. Yeah. Do you meditate? Do I meditate? God, no. I don't meditate. No, okay. no. I talk to myself. Is that is that what meditation is? I talk <laughs> to myself. Could, could I walk around the house and I kind of talk to myself. You yeah. know, I, I get it all out of my system. I shake it out. Yeah. Okay. And um, secrets for being on the road. Is it something that energizes you, or do you have any ways that you you make that handle? Because that, that can be pretty grueling. That yeah. Oh yeah. Gosh yeah. You know. It's all about the clothes. It's for a woman, it's all about the clothes. You gotta look great on the road. If you look great, you feel great. That's for women. I don't know how it is for men, mm. never been a man. But the point is, it's just that it's all about the color scheme. It's about getting you know clothes that don't wrinkle. It's about, you know, like last week in Poland, every day I wore black, right? It was great. Every day I wore black. It was just a theme, black on black every day. And it was all, you know, and it's just, you, you gotta, it's like anything in life. You gotta psych yourself up for it, right? Literally at the airport of Warsaw a week ago, I was kind of like, how is it that I'm spending my entire week in Poland until I meet Anna. Anna starts telling me all about Polish history. So I, I, I decide I'm going to write a blog on why Poland matters. Boy, did I have the evidence for that by the end of the week. Then I get kind of excited because I'm meeting all these great people and I feel that I'm learning. And then, you know, so how do you psych yourself up for anything in life, whether it's grueling travel or whether it's 80 hours a week or whatever, I'm not saying it doesn't take a toll. It takes a lot more of a toll on me today than it did 15 years ago to work 80 hours a week, but I'm also in better shape. I just decided about five years ago to get myself into kick-ass shape, right? So I love being in good shape because it enables me to do great work, right? So a lot of people kind of get fat. You can't do that if you want to work 80 hours a week. You can't do that if you want to make a great contribution to the world. You can't get fat, right? So like I stripped out alcohol. Not because I don't like a glass of wine, but I just thought Saturday nights, if I'm with people that I really like, I want to have a great glass of wine. But you know what? Most of us do. We have bad white wine at bad events, right? <laughs> Most of us spend time with people we don't really like. We watch bad TV. We drink bad wine. So I just said ixnay to all of that years ago. I just said, drink good wine with people you love. Good where, code. Where do you uh, find the time to hit the gym? I have a personal trainer. Okay. I've got the most awesome personal trainer. She is living walking proof. If you could see my personal trainer, I just say every day, I say, Camilla, it's so great to, I said, you know, I just want to look like you, Camilla. You look great. So I've got, you know, I've got somebody who works me out. In morning, evenings, weekends, all of the above? Yeah, kind of whenever I can fit yeah. it in. She lives close by me and she comes Good. over. We do two times on the weekend and two times during the course of the week. But the thing is, you know, when I, um, I worked out three hours a um, I was really, really fit when I was in my teens and my 20s. For women and women technology entrepreneurs and women venture capitalists and people that have, you got to be fit, right? You can't be mentally fit unless you're physically fit. It goes together and always played sports, right? So I know what it means to be fit. And once you've been fit, 
When you're not, you know it. Right, right? and mentally you know it as well. Right. We, we've had some incredible women on recently, including Sandy Carter. We had Claire Cockerton last week from Innovate. Um, and uh, this phrase comes up, and I, I, maybe the phrase is the flaw, but the phrase is women in tech. And is that a phrase that bothers you when you hear it? Is it something that we should talk about, or should we be talking about other things mm -hmm. than just this phrase? Because it mm -hmm. seems like that's not actually addressing the issue. So, um, you know, one of the chapters in my book, Welcome to Entrepreneur Country, which I published um, a year or so ago, is, and I really, really mean this, is the world is becoming feminine, right? So I don't mean that that it's, you know, that's not an anti-men statement. Some of the most successful men I know are feminine. They always say, please, Julie, don't refer to us that way. But, um, you know, so I thought it was very clever. I took all of the positive qualities and I called them feminine isn't that good? good. So yeah, emotional good. intelligence, you know, all of the positive stuff. And I said, those are feminine leadership qualities. And those are the ones that are becoming, helping you become sex successful. So if we live in a networked world, people whose brains are naturally wired to think about their group, right? Never been a man, so I don't know. But it appears that we're ahead of you guys on that. We naturally think of the group, not because we're angels. Perhaps. But because we naturally think of the group, right? So women make arguably better leaders in many, many respects. So rather than women in tech or women in boardrooms or all of these kind of, you know, like ghettos, I, I just focus on the fact that the world is becoming feminine. And I see lots and lots of evidence for that. So I kind of worry about the men. I really do. I'm worried about you guys. I'm worried that we might have to have quotas for you guys in a couple of years. We yeah. should be talking about men in tech. Yeah. Right? Men in tech. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting observation. We've had a lot of people here suggest that people get a female on their founding team and just yeah. to be thinking of this whole, not to mention that's your half of your audience, but just to be, like you said, thinking in different ways. Well, so, I thought it was interesting that somebody said recently, they sent around a, a Twitter feed, and I thought it was, it was just so, so just, just breathtakingly condescending. He said, are there only three women venture capitalists as partners in Europe? Which is kind of a way, if you think about it, you guys might not get this, but it was kind of like saying, you know, it's pitiful, right? And so he said, you know, is it just three? In Poland, in four days, I met four partners who are women in venture capital, right? So the point is, just because we don't know the outstanding whatever, pick your category, pick your gender, pick your race, pick your whatever, just because you don't know those people doesn't mean they're not to be discovered. And that's the big issue. Some of us, I have a big mouth. I like to talk about my companies. I like to talk about my vision. Not every woman partner in venture capital is going to be known, but they are out there. They just might be in Prague or Gavinia, right? Or whatever, right? So the point is, is just that how do we get people who have a story to tell, a contribution to make? How do we get those guys on Silicon Reel? Let's make it happen, Julie. Um, a few questions for you at the end. We ask everyone that comes on here, if you could make a phone call to the 20-year-old Julie, I don't know if she's in Paris or where she is, and give her a bit of advice, what would you tell her? So the 20-year-old Julie was really lucky she had an outstanding father. Um, my dad is the best father in the world. He was super busy, so he only said one thing to me, and he said, anything you set your mind to, you can achieve, because he didn't know what else to say. He was so busy, but thank God he said that. So I always knew anything I set my mind to, I could achieve, and I kept on investing myself, even when people said, no, you should do this, you should do that, blah, blah, blah. So, but, you know, it took the boyfriend to say, stop worrying about the money, right? It took INSEAD at 29 to put me in a group where I could benchmark myself against a peer group. And I said, oh my God, I'll never be as good as those guys over there at that stuff, but I can see I'm better at them than this. So if I could, the 20-year-old Julie, if she could have learned the lessons from INSEAD, 
I made every rookie 101 mistake with First Tuesday. I've, done, I've made so many mistakes. If the 20-year-old Julie could have learned from all of the mistakes, which I wrote about in my book, Welcome to Entrepreneur Country, boy, oh boy, wow, you know, Julie at age 20 would be amazing. But, you know, that's life. You learn that stuff along the way. And then you try to tell those stories. So what I try to tell, as I did last night at dinner, I told an entrepreneur who's about to sign a deal, I said, don't do that, right? You are the guy who's making this, and you're bringing people in as equal partners, and they've done jack shit for that position, right? Don't give people your equity, right, if they're not making the same contribution, the same risk. So corporate structure, corporate architecture, really is the reason why people win. And a lot of people don't know that. A lot of entrepreneurs, their first business, they make the mistake of making a profound corporate architecture mistake. I've learned this stuff over you know, 20 to 48, 28 years, right? I just desperately try to help people get the message out about the mistakes that I made. And also, I managed to do enough stuff along the way to kind of keep the balance, where I was always like, you know, for every one step back, two steps forward-ish. Okay. Second part of that question, uh, best advice you've ever received, not from your father or your French boyfriend? Uh-huh. Could be business or personal. Yeah. Um, Jeremy Collar, who's given me, who's just one of the wisest um, men along the way. You know, I always wanted to have a business partner, which is why I made the mistakes I did with First Tuesday. And then I wanted to have people on my board because somehow I thought, you know, it'd be valuable to have people on my board. And I think Jeremy just said at one point, just like, Julius, just stop. Just stop. You're just trying, you know, all of just, just stop. It's you. Just keep on going. Just do your thing. You know, you own the, you own the company yourself. It's you. Just go forward. Stop trying to create all these people stuff around you, right? And I think that there comes a time where you can create a lot of noise. You can look for everybody else to give you advice and to create, you know, everybody becomes a mini advisory board. But at the end of the day, it's just really all about your muscle and listening to yourself and your gut and so forth. That's the most important thing that you got to figure out in life, right? It's just, what do you make of any situation? I just met somebody. Why don't I trust him? I just met a woman. She on paper, looks like the right person to hire. I just don't feel that I should, right? So there's, there's something going on in your makeup, your mental ability, your neural network, which is working for you all the time. You got to listen to it. So trust it and stand on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, last part of that question is to the 20-year-old that's listening to us uh, from uh, around the world via iTunes or, or YouTube, what advice do you give to them if they want to be an entrepreneur? They want to grow up and be one of these people you're talking about. Do anything else. <laughs> do anything else it's just you know it's not there's there's nothing glamorous going on here right. Right? Is, you has think it been it rock star has yeah. this whole lifestyle been rock starred so no, no 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 not at all and so that's what i would say it's just like um if you can really deal with the unbelievable stress of driving the train most entrepreneurs i know are skint right very few of them make any kind of money whatsoever if you can deal with the fact of you're going to have more bosses than you ever thought possible between your customers, your bank, your shareholders, your employees. If you can deal with all of that stress, right? And you still feel so compelled to just do it that you are not going to be okay unless you bring your product and service to market. Do it. Otherwise don't do it. Okay. If you're thinking about work-life balance, you're having the wrong conversation. Okay. And don't think about the money as well. No. Okay, that's awesome stuff. Uh, we're out of time. Tell us more about Entrepreneur Country coming up. What is the art of war? What's going on? It sounds, you know, it's very Sun Tzu-y. Mm. What's happening at that event? What can yeah. people get out of it? Just tell us a little bit more about it. 
entrepreneurcountryforum.com. Um, we are basically, um, we're bringing Poland. We're doing Poland Goes Global at Entrepreneur Country. Um, we're having Andrea Febreo of eBuzzing, $100 million revenue company, yeah, talking company. about that. We've got Made TV, Jamie Conway, talking about local television, why it's not just about video and online. It's about television locally. What does that mean? We've got Mark Kanji of Activation, talking about how he's solving problems for banks that they thought about last week, but he's been solving for two years. So we continue to bring great entrepreneurs to the stage for 500 people, every entrepreneur country forum. Um, and uh, what we're doing basically is we're trying to, to get people to have that dialogue sooner. Because what we know, a lot of our investment methodology at Ariadne Capital and, and Entrepreneur Country is based on Carlotta Perez. So after people read Welcome to Entrepreneur Country, the second book they should read is The Theory of Disruptive Technology and Adoption by Carlotta Perez. And what she says second half of the cycle. It's about Goliath embracing David. And what that means is that if we do that sooner, and an entrepreneur country is part of doing that sooner, so everybody understands the same thing happens every 60 to 80 years, the sooner Goliath embraces David, the more prosperity ensues across society, right? We wait late, we all kind of think that, you know, it's all going to happen. We get billionaires. Not a problem with that either, but if we care about society and evenly distributed prosperity, which I do, then you want to be part of the discussion that we're having at Entrepreneur Country. Powerful. I love it. Um, which, go ahead. Go what's ahead. the date and where is it? So it, you want to go to entrepreneurcountryforum.com okay. to register. Okay. Um, you may want to participate. There may be, you, want to, might, you might want to pitch. You, want, you might want to be on stage. You might want to be exhibit. You might just want to invite people. So at entrepreneurcountryforum.com. Got it all there. How can people get a hold of you directly? What's the best way? Twitter? Do you give your email At out? This Julie is always the Marie Meyer. Okay. Julie at AriadneCapital.com. There you go. All sorts of ways. I'm easily accessible for people who try hard. Fantastic. All right. Very good. I'm going to call it there. If you're listening to us on iTunes, uh, come see us at our YouTube channel. Um, give us a rating maybe every now and again. They oh, yeah, help yeah. out, they help out <clears throat> right? Yeah. Give us a review on iTunes. Give us a review. Uh, share us and like us on YouTube. Um, you can some see our extremely good-looking, well-lit faces Yeah. Yep. Uh, on YouTube. Um, uh, Julie, thanks so much for being here. You're very opini opinionated. I like that. And everything you say... Uh, seems to come from uh, in the heart, as in, you know, you're saying these things, you know, not to be opinionated or not like putting someone down. You're kind of saying this is your take on it. So thanks so much for coming here. Um, and, thanks for uh, having me. Um, no, no problem. Uh, my pleasure. As we say on Silicon Reel, it's about the people. There we go. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Take care. Once you're in a buyout industry, the, the key skill you need to have is being very, very, very good at spreadsheets to analyze the target company in as much detail as possible. Usually when we first invest in a company, you're right, we, we own 20% and often the founders are left with 80%. Generally, we still want those companies to be run and managed by the founders. The three biggest trends around where most of the value in the tech industry have been created the last 10, 15 years, probably I would say mobile, social and cloud.